0: Ready to start your ESG journey? Get going today with social Suite, and you could start reporting publicly in 30 days. With investor pressure mounting and regulations just around the corner, there's never been a better time to start your ESG reporting. Social Suite takes the complexity out of environmental, social, and governance reporting. Social Suite helps organizations to measure, monitor, and report on their progress with fast, simple, and affordable software. Create value through ESG in order to raise capital, improve brand and reputation, as well as mitigate risk. Social Suite has helped almost 100 micro to small cap companies report on ESG, with some starting their baseline report in under 60 minutes and reporting publicly within 30 days. ESG is a lot easier than you think, and you're probably already doing it. So take your sustainability reporting to the next level with measurable progress. Start your ESG journey today with social Suite, an ESG software company for micro to small caps. Visit SocialSuiteHQ.com. That's Social SocialSuiteHQ.com to learn more. My guest on the show today is Roy Olivier, CEO and president of Research Solutions, Inc. It's a publicly traded company. The symbol is RSSS on NASDAQ. Research Solutions, Inc. provides cloud-based technologies to streamline the process of obtaining, managing, and creating intellectual property. Founded in 2006 as Reprint's Desk, the company was a pioneer in developing solutions to serve researchers. I did an interview on Planet Microcap with Avi Fisher from Longcast Advisors, where he described his thesis about research solutions. And so I wanted to invite on Roy to better understand the company, as well as the company's pivot from an individual articles model to a platform model, industry tailwinds and headwinds, what the company looks like in an open access world, and where he would like to see the company in three to five years. With that, please enjoy my conversation with Roy Olivier, CEO and President of Research Solutions, Inc. Roy, thank you for joining me today. How are you doing?
1: Oh, doing great. Yeah, thanks for having us, Robert.
0: Absolutely. It's great to have you on. Um, I, I'm I'm actually really looking forward to this. You know, I've spoken with one of your, your board members about the company before, and then actually uh, Avi Fisher from uh, Longcast Advisor was on my podcast a few months ago talking about RSSS and uh we figured, you know, I wanted to have Roy on to, to just dive a little bit deeper in the story. So to start us off, and this is the question I ask everybody on here as the first question, can you give us that one line that best describes research solutions?
1: Sure. Yeah, we supply, we we basically provide software tools to researchers in organizations that are focused on research and development to help kind of take the friction out of the research research process.
0: Very good. All right, let's take a step back into the the history of the company. You know, when was the company founded and what would you, what, I know I know you came on, I think in like 2021, If, if correct me if I'm wrong here, but you know, what, what was the original thesis to the best of your knowledge?
1: Uh, the company was founded by a gentleman named Peter Dirtz who's currently the chairman of the board. Uh, Peter has been in the research community, research business for a long time. This is, I think, his second or third uh, company in that space. And he literally started out uh, back in college providing scientific articles to people that were working on their master's or PhD and needed an article about peanut allergy or needed articles about um, COVID. And so they would literally leave a leave a taped list of what they needed on their dorm room door. He would pull it off and he would overnight go to the library. They would find all the scientific research related to that subject and they would tape it at the dorm room door. So the next morning uh, that master's or a PhD student had what they needed. So that's how the business started back when it was all photocopying things in libraries. Today, of course, most of that is electronic.
0: I would hope so. Um, <laughs> uh, so then, yeah, catch us up to today, you know, from mm-hmm. the, those humble beginnings and, you know, taking photocopies out of those articles and then providing it to the student body, you know, to now how the company exists in its current form.
1: Well, uh, yeah, the first, certainly in the initial days of the company, um, other customers of ours, which are primarily corporations that are in the R&D space, they would, um, their research, their researchers who might be researching COVID, obesity, peanut allergy, whatever uh, subject area they're working on, including battery EV technology is a big one right now. They would uh, need to access the world's scientific information, which is predominantly the peer reviewed scientific articles that you might get in the New England Journal of Medicine, or literally hundreds of other journals. And they would need everything in that area that they were doing research on. So they would need anywhere between one and thousands of articles in those topic areas. And so they would typically do a search on a uh, either a publicly available website or a private search engine that they've acquired. The two most commonly used Publicly available websites is one called PubMed, which is backed by the US government. The other is Google Scholar, which of course is part of Google. You can go there, search for a peanut allergy, and you'll get, uh, basically a search across about 80 million articles from a couple of hundred publishers, and it'll show you all of the articles scientifically reviewed. I'm sorry, peer reviewed scientific articles related to that subject area. But where it stops is it basically says, here is the publisher that publishes that article. And so you as a user would have to click on that, go to the publisher website, uh, pay by credit card, or have a subscription, or have another method of getting the article. And then the second article, article on that list could be a completely different publisher. Third article could be a completely different publisher. So what we did is we created a system where you can go into our system and you can order all those in one place. And we take care of getting it from the publisher, delivering it to you and paying the publisher. So we bill you once per month typically, um, and we take care of all the copyright stuff in the background. So the business for many years, we refer to that as transactions or doc delivery. We were a doc delivery business. But uh, five or six years ago, we created a software platform called Article Galaxy. It allows you to go in and order and receive these articles, but in its, its, in its initial versions, it was basically just doc delivery with a platform front end. But today you can do the search inside Article Galaxy, find the results, click to get it. You can uh, receive the articles in the platform and we store them automatically in your corporate library where all your articles are, are stored in one place. We have options that allow you to create individual folders around peanut allergy or Havana syndrome. We have options that allow you to create a team folder. So if you're working with a research team of ten people, you can create a team folder, put all the articles in there. We have options that allow you to pull it up in the platform and mark it up. You can do that on a in a browser, you can do it on an iPad, or you can do it on a Chromebook, or a, a, you know pretty much any tablet device. So what we're doing is we're trying to tie together. A number of steps in that research project process that have historically been handled by different tools that really don't talk to each other very well and allow that researcher to come in, do the search, acquire the documents, manage the documents, and then ultimately create their own IP, which could be a new article or could be a patent application for a new drug or new uh, biomedical device, all within one tool set.
0: Very good. You know, it's funny. I was I was going to ask about the the pivot to the more or the focus more on the platform model and going not necessarily away from the transaction because a good amount of the revenue for the company is still coming from transactions itself. But there seems to be a clear focus now that pivoting towards this platform model. So, love to hear more about how that transition has been. Is that where the company is really allocating most of its marketing resources?
1: Yeah, when we think about the business, uh, certainly a lot of the emphasis in the last five years has been on creating those software tools and selling the platform to our customer base. And of course, originally, we had around 1,100 customers that were transaction customers that were buying documents from us. Today, we have 12, 1,300 of those customers, so we still have the same number, and we've converted 60 70% of them to being a platform customer. But when you really look at our, let's say, trailing 12 months or trailing 24 months, most of the new customers we bring on, and we brought in about 150 over the last 12 months, they're new, new. And and new, new to us means they're a new platform customer and they're a new transaction customer. I think one of the misconceptions about our business is, well, if I buy the platform, I'm no longer buying transactions. And that's not the case. The platform simply helps you automate several steps in the workflow you follow every day. But when you click to get an article, you still either need to buy it, or you need to have a subscription for it, or you need to have what's called a token package, which is a uh, where you basically can pre-buy articles at a discount and use a token, unless it's a free article. And there are a growing number, a growing percentage of the articles are free. It's under something called open access.
0: Very good. Another point I wanted to hit on in, in a little bit having to do with open access. But, you know, in in thinking about the the competitive landscape here, you know, as you guys put on your on your presentation that the company is looking to be the Bloomberg or LexisNexis for the scientific, technical and medical research um, uh, space. I mean, what what does your competitive landscape look like? You gave, gave me a few folks that like, you know, uh, some of your customers may otherwise use or I don't know maybe use in conjunction with research solutions? We want to get a better understanding of who you're competing with, as well as the 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 TAM as well, the total addressable market here.
1: Yeah, those are all great questions. I think um, I it's a little bit of a setting the table for that. We think about research in four broad steps. Basically, uh, search for it, acquire it, manage it, and then create your own IP, which is that patent for that new device or article you want to get peer reviewed. So if you look at the competitive landscape, the competitive landscape in each one of those four columns is slightly different. If you think about it from the perspective of doc delivery, there's really um, three or four main ways you acquire documents today. You're either buying them from the Publishers Direct, you're buying them from us, you're buying them from one of our larger US competitors called the Copyright Clearance Center or CCC, uh, and those are those probably represent a vast majority of the articles being acquired in the U.S. today. You're either getting them like directly from the publisher or one of the two of us. However, when you look at the search side, there's free search engines, and then there's paid search engines from people like Clarivate, which is a public company, and several other search engine suppliers that focus on this segment. And so, as an example, we don't think search engine is an area where we're going to invest a lot of time and energy because it's basically a commodity. There's Free and paid options already out there. When you look at doc delivery, we already think we're kind of the best in the world at doc delivery. That third pillar is called uh, reference management, which is where you're managing the articles you acquire. We compete with probably a half a dozen real, um, you know, larger scale competitors in that segment. But uh, we think we stack up pretty well because our workflow is deeply integrated into the doc delivery aspect of it. So it's very easy to start with a search, get the document, and have it automatically inserted into the reference management application within our tool set. Um, and then on the on the back end of creating IP, there's there are different competitors there. But the way we think about the world, we basically compete with CCC in the U.S., a company called uh, ReadCube that has a product called Paper in Europe. And then there's a couple of smaller, scrappy kind of startups. And then, of course, we're always competing with the publishers themselves.
0: Absolutely. You know, another question, I'm sure you get this one all the time, but, you know, when thinking about the moat for the business, I mean, what's stopping Alexis Alexis Nexus being like, all right, you know, uh, let's get into scientific research now and go and copy paste exactly what Research Solutions is doing?
1: Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think they, you know, LexisNexis has actually owned, uh, they're part of Elsevier, which is the number one scientific publisher in the world. And I think think that uh, the moat in the business for us today is that we have relationships with all publishers. So we're kind of a Switzerland. When you do that search for peanut allergy, we're going to show you the search results. You can filter it any way you want to look at it. But what we do not do is emphasize one publisher over another publisher's uh, results. So you know, a lot of our customers like the fact that we're Switzerland, they can come here. Imagine uh, back in the day when iTunes first came out, you could go there and search for any music from any band and you could click to get it a dollar at a time or an album at a time. And you didn't have to go to four different uh, uh, record stores to find what you want. It was all in one place in the cloud. We do that today across all publishers in the scientific, technical and medical space. And we're one of the very, very few people who do that. Um, And we are, you know, because not only do we do the easy stuff, the electronic stuff, we still will send a guy to a library to photocopy an article. And believe it or not, we process between 80 and 100,000 requests for articles a month. And 20% of those require somebody to physically interact with that order. And so we might be sending a guy to uh, the British library. We might be sending a guy to a library in Germany or a library in the U.S. to physically get an older article, photocopy it, and deliver it to our customer, which a lot of the smaller startups can't do. They don't have the infrastructure to do that.
0: Got it. Our bad joke that came to my mind is like, oh, there's probably like a Dr. AA out there that changed his name to that just to make sure, oh, I'm going on the Switzerland of uh, of research solutions here. You know, like I, I want to make sure I have the highest, uh, uh, you know, my article shows up first and because it's alphabetical or something. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, bad joke. Sorry. Everybody. Right. Um, You know, I, so you brought up um, open access. A little bit here and and actually in the interview that I talked about uh, that I did with Ari, we, we talked about open access and it being, I think, potentially a headwind for the company. So can you give me a better understanding of what open access is and then why this is important when thinking about research solutions?
1: Yeah, really good question. I think that uh, when you think about the doc delivery business itself, there is a growing um Percentage of new articles being published that are open access, and the way you think about open access it's just a free article instead of paying thirty-five bucks or forty-five bucks. It's free. So you know what's happening around the world is there's a number of countries and stakeholders that believe that you know medical research is for the benefit of humanity and it should not be behind a paid firewall. Europe actually several years ago um, passed some initiatives that said that if it's funded by the European Union, I'm talking about research. It cannot be behind a firewall. So we've had OA growing as a percentage of European published scientific articles uh, for quite a while. And then late last year, Biden signed an executive order saying that U.S. funded research could not be behind a paywall. What that basically did is it kind of accelerated the amount of time uh, that that article had to be free, not behind a paywall. So uh, how does that translate into our business? If, if you looked at our business kind of under the covers, because we typically publicly report, this is how much money we made on transactions last quarter. But if you look under there, there's, uh, you know, 80 to 100,000 articles being delivered a month. Some percentage of them are paid. Some percentage of them are OA. Some of them are acquired via a previously in place subscription or a token package, or what's called reuse. I bought that article before, another researcher on the other side of the world needs to see it, so I don't have to buy it a second time I could reuse it. And so what, what you'll see with OA, is if you go back five years, OA was a very small single digit percentage of our overall article delivery. Today it's in the teens, 10 to 20%, and it will continue to grow. But the other way to think about it 80 million plus scientific articles out there. It's growing at 4 million, so a year. And those 80 million are not affected by this new regulatory requirement that uh, stuff can't be behind a paywall. So what you're gonna see is you're gonna see some headwind on the business in that newer articles are going to uh, have a larger percent, per- percentage of them being free. But for example, when Biden signed his executive order, we did a bunch of internal analysis on what impact do we think that's going to have on our revenue over the next four to five years. And we think it's a single digit percentage. So it is it is a headwind in the business, but we're adding enough new business on top that it's offsetting what we're losing in OA uh, today.
0: Well, also, I mean, in and just you know, in thinking about this, you know, not to be like Mr. Optimistic or anything like that. But I mean, that makes a lot more sense than why the company pivoted towards a platform. Because once you, it it makes more sense that if OA becomes more a larger percentage of the new articles that are coming online, well, there still needs to be, you would think it would be easier as the researcher to at least be subscribed to a platform. It's like, well, I still need to organize this. I still need to I still need to find it. Right. I mean, that 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 is that how you guys thought. Think about it as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. They they still need to find it. They still need to acquire it. They still need to uh, manage that content in a way other than storing it on your hard drive or when you leave your intellectual property that you paid for, your company paid for, it goes with you and they still need to create uh, their new IP. So, you know, what we did is we sat back and said, yeah, there's going to be some headwinds in the transaction business. But the reality is we have 40,000 researchers, roughly a month that are using our tool. And we sat back and said, okay, we have 40,000 researchers. What can we do to help them be more efficient? And that led to uh, the strategy we have today, which is creating software tools that automate those four pillars of the research process, as opposed to just delivering documents.
0: Right. That that makes a lot more sense.
1: Yeah, no, it's just that it
0: on one hand, like I get I get the open access potential headwind, but at the same time, it's like, you know, if you know these researchers, and you know, I went to Fourier University at UCSD, one of the best in terms of research. And you know, I've interacted quite a bit with many PhD students, you know, and uh they just want to do the research. They want it easy. Right. They they don't want they don't want it to be more complicated. And also at the same time, like they're not thinking about like all right, I already have my funding. I just let me let me whatever I got to do to get what I what I need in order to do my research. That's that's really all I care about.
1: Yep. Yeah. In fact, we measure uh, our net promoter score NPS score quarterly, and this morning I got last quarter's uh, results, and I was reading the comments because I, I like to see comments that people put when they do the NPS survey. And you know, under the what do you like about uh, the Article Galaxy product? Uh, very consistent feedback about uh, s- speed and quality. And basically I can get it immediately. I can, I get a high quality output and the UI is super simple for me to use. And to your point, you know, researchers are some of the highest paid people in an organization typically. So anything we can do to make them more efficient is real savings to the company that employs them. Absolutely.
0: All right.
1: And so, you
0: know, i I wanted to get an answer also for regarding, uh, Tam, I, I jumped it. I jumbled it in with another question. So that, that was on me. I should have made it its own question, but you know, in, in looking at the the total addressable market here, you know, and, and with respect also to where the company is from a trailing 12 month revenue perspective, I'm, I'm, I'm using the, uh, your February, 2023 presentation as reference for this, you know, can you give me a better idea of what the total addressable market is for the company and how you're, Continuing to to focus on that growth strategy and, and just capture more of it.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I think to uh, to get to the answer the end first, we think our market share today is a single digit number. We think it's six or seven percent of the TAM. Uh, when we think about TAM, we have uh, we have publicly reported several times that we think our TAM is around seven hundred thousand clients. When I got here, um, I wasn't entirely comfortable with that answer. So what we did is we said, okay, what verticals do we have installs in today? This is the longer answer. And we had installs in about 62 verticals. How many companies are in those verticals is a pretty easy question to answer. But then where it gets really complicated is for company XYZ in this particular vertical, how many researchers do they have? Because that's who we're serving and if they have two or five, they're really not a prospect for us. They need to have a multiple of that. So our sweet spot, in fact, is between 25 and 200 researchers. That's where a majority of our new sales come from. So when we think about TAM that way, we don't have a 700,000 number. I don't have an exact number, but it's in the hundreds of thousands, which is where we do. Uh, deduce that our market share today is somewhere in that six or seven percent range
0: very good and then i mean you know you mentioned in the in this in your in your presentation that uh the company is fully funded to execute the organic growth strategy tell me a little bit more about what the organic what the growth strategy is you know how are you how are you looking to capture more time?
1: yep well, I think, um, you know, in the last couple of years, you've seen a pretty significant uptick in our expenses as it relates to product development and product management. So we've spent a lot more money than we used to. In fact, our development team is five times the size it was two years ago. And that's really to execute around the software tools to service our total addressable market. I think the other areas you've seen some increase is in sales and marketing. We've added some salespeople, we've added a full new marketing team. We're spending more on digital marketing, webinars, and other marketing, other things that we think will drive marketing qualified leads than we ever have historically. And so for me, it's about how do we create products that really deliver for our customers? And then how do we um, get the word out uh, that we do this and literally translate a theoretical TAM into a name of a decision maker and names of the researchers in the organization, which are the two pieces that we need to market to in order to sell ultimately a platform there.
0: Very good. So, I mean, you know, because I'm again referencing this. You know, I'm looking at net incomes, uh, loss of just under a million, adjust the EBITDA, just just over half a million. So, I mean, is is that the company could theoretically be even more profitable or be profitable if you weren't spending all this extra cash on every everything you just said?
1: Yeah, when I got here, we made a we made a decision consciously to to increase our spend by about a million dollars a year, and um, you know that's really resulted in in new product, better sales, better sales marketing, that sort of thing. We don't expect to continue that uptick every year. So I think as we go forward, we have said that in this fiscal year, which for us ends June 30th, we would be cash flow positive and EBITDA positive. Um, And so I think you'll continue to see us generate uh, cash and EBITDA in the last couple of quarters of the year, because we thought seriously about adding five or six new salespeople at the beginning of this year. We decided it wasn't the right time to do that because we weren't done with the TAM project where we had names of people to contact. Um, But, you know, going forward, my message is we expect to remain cash flow positive and EBITDA positive. The way Bill and I think about it, and Bill's our CFO, is we're strong believers in what's called the rule of 40, which means that uh, you know if our platform's growing at 30% a year, we should have 10% EBITDA margin. If, if we're growing at 25% a year, we need 15% EBITDA margin. If we could generate 40% year-over-year platform growth consistently, I'd be okay with 0% EBITDA because we can dial back sales and marketing whenever we want, uh, but going forward, you know, I expect us to continue to take, to take steps toward that rule of 40, where our platform growth rate, which has been about 30, and our EBITDA margin uh, add up to 40 or more. No, one quick capital
0: allocation question for you. I mean, you know, one way to obviously grow the business is, you know, looking at various acquisitions. I mean, have you, have you thought about that at all in terms of the growth strategy for the company, or is it just totally focused on sales and marketing right now?
1: No, we, we actually do think, um, we do believe very strongly in, in tying acquisitions to an organic growth strategy. In fact, Bill and I were CFO, CEO of a previous company. And if you looked at our five year growth, Kager, a little bit uh, more than half of our growth came from acquisitions, so a little bit less than half came organically here for really the until early about this time in, in 2022 we had a big disconnect of valuation expectations because the market was so hot so we had people that wanted literally 20 times revenue that were burning cash and that's just not something we are interested in doing so this year we've continued to look at a lot of uh, a lot of acquisition opportunities been very active in that space but we just haven't found the right deal yet because keep in mind we don't want to do things that are uh really super dilutive to our investors and we we'd love to have recurring revenue that that, that is cash flow positive uh, but if we can get recurring revenue that's close to cash flow positive you know then then that's something that's in our deal zone so uh very active part of the business unfortunately we haven't been able to get a deal done together yet but uh, we are we are looking and working hard on adding m a on top of our organic strategy very good
0: so another question that I ask everybody on here, you know, in, in your opinion, after uh, you know uh, you've taken an investor one-on-one meeting or people had a chance to hear a conference, you know, just did a little bit deeper dive, maybe chatted with you or in Bill, you know, once or twice. What do you think investors still get confused about when when thinking about research solutions and maybe some frequently asked questions that we can attack here.
1: Yeah, I think it's a a tough business to understand. First off, a lot of people don't uh, really think in terms of what is scientific research like and how can this tool set help? You know, I tell people in the investment community, imagine before you had a Bloomberg terminal, what the world was like, that that's kind of what we're doing is we're trying to transition from pre-Bloomberg to a tool set that helps researchers. Same thing with LexisNexis helping attorneys think about before they existed. Um, and so, you know, I, I think helping people, number one, just kind of understand what does this business do exactly has been, a, has been a bit of a stretch. I think the second thing is investors have a tendency to screen for stocks and they look for some very specific kind of overall company performance numbers, one of which is organic growth rate and one of which is profitability. And so when they look at that for us, previous to the last couple of quarters, you know, we had a single digit growth rate, two, three, four, five percent. And we were unprofitable intentionally, and so we immediately get thrown out. The baby gets thrown out with the bathwater in terms of uh, a high-level screen of the company. I think the folks that really take the time to get under the covers and understand, oh, you've got this tran- transaction business that has been flattish, and you've got this software, this SaaS software platform that's growing at thirty percent a year. That's a lot more interesting story than it looks at the surface. And then when they, when they really start to dig in underneath there, we get a lot of questions around OA. We get a lot of questions around TAM. We get a lot of questions about how fast could we grow this thing? For example, could you just put 20 more salespeople on it and grow it at 100% a year? Uh, we get, we get questions about MA, et cetera. But, you know, somebody has to really take the time to get below those top level stock screen numbers and understand the business, which a lot of people aren't willing to do. I'm glad to hear that we
0: hit on most of the frequently asked questions before that. Uh, That's good. I'm doing my job, I guess, a little bit here. You're welcome, everyone. Um, (laughs) You know, another question I ask everybody on here too, you know, in in your opinion, what, what would you also say are some of the company's downside risks? Yeah, that's a great question.
1: I think the, um, I think certainly a downside risk we talked about with OA, you know, acceleration of OA uh, today, you know, the the Dell or transaction side of our business uh, is a, it's a robust business and it generates the cash that is funding the growth of the platform business. Because, you know, we're certainly investing 100% of whatever EBITDA we make on the platform business in software engineering, in salespeople, and in the operational infrastructure it takes to support those customers. So uh, a significant deterioration in, in dock delivery for whatever reason is a downside risk for us in the short term. But I don't, I don't really lose sleep about that. And the reason I don't is because while we are a, I call us a, a nice 20 foot ski boat surrounded by aircraft carriers and the aircraft carriers are the publishers, we have longstanding decade plus relationships with these publishers and Back to my stat earlier, we have about forty thousand researchers that are landing in our platform on a monthly basis using it. and obviously all those publishers are very interested in those forty thousand researchers acquiring their articles from the publisher. So I, I don't I don't really lose a lot of sleep about that downside risk. I think the you know it's the unknown thing, the economic impact of something happening that I think is is what I worry about, but it's by definition, an unknown risk.
0: Absolutely. So then, Roy, uh, another question that I'd like to ask everybody on here. And again, in your opinion, where would you like to see the company in three to five years? And what would you say are some of the inflection points that will get you there?
1: Yeah. Um, You know, I think that um, we have not really articulated a three to five year from now uh, vision. What we did say a couple of years ago is we wanted to grow the ARR of the business to 20 million in three years. We wanted to maintain the transaction revenue to be flat-ish. And in order to achieve that $20 million in ARR number, excuse me, we believe that we were gonna deliver about 14 million, 15 million of that organically, and that we would need to acquire about 6 million in recurring revenue in that three-year window. We are um, somewhat on track on the organic side. We're behind on the acquisition side because of the comments I mentioned earlier where we just found valuations to be untenable. Um, so, going forward, I probably need to update those numbers, but going forward, we continue to focus on growing the annual recurring revenue, which is the SaaS platform business. We continue to look for that transaction business to remain flat or flat-ish, but we've had a couple of things that have happened in the last six to nine months that have affected both of those numbers. One is we're seeing a general economic slowdown on companies investing in new technology or new platforms or new things, period. Because of the overall global economic environment. So, uh, CFOs, CEOs have put a lot of spending on hold, just like I have as the CEO here until we see how this economy is going to perform for the second half of this year. So we've seen some slower, some slowdown, if you will, in bringing on new customers and some changes in how we're upselling and upgrading customers in, in at the renewal period. Uh, the second thing that's happened, though, is we did acquire a document delivery uh, set of customers last year, a company called Fizz Autodoc. I, I just referred to them as Fizz. So that's generated some year over year growth in the transaction business. You might remember I just said we expect that business to be flat. But, uh, you know, last quarter it grew at uh, 10.7. The quarter before that, it grew at 12.2. So we're starting to see. I'm sorry. That's our overall growth rate. It went from four five to twelve two, and then ten seven. So we're seeing some nice year over year growth in the transaction business, uh, but we're seeing a little bit of slowdown in our in our growth rate of the platform business because of the general economic conditions out there right now. Very good.
0: All right. Well, uh, you know, I think we're we're pretty much there. I mean, um, you know, one question I didn't ask you, and I guess we'll close out with this, was a little bit, and you've alluded to it a little bit here. But can you, can you give us more about your background? You know, I, I think I was right when you, you came into the business in 2021, right? Into research solutions. So I'd love to hear more about your experience prior.
1: Yeah, great. Yeah, I was actually on the board of research solutions as a board member, independent board member for a couple of years before I kind of stepped in to uh, run the business. Before that, I was the CEO of a public company uh, uh, called ARI Network Services. Their stock symbol is A-R-I-S. That's where we first met Ari. And we were in a similar business to the extent that we licensed content from third parties. We put it in software and we sold it ultimately to users. But as a public company, we grew that business from uh, you know 10 million in sales to 50 million in sales with 20% even margins. We sold it to private equity and then uh, used the private equity checkbook, if you will, to kind of dramatically drive acquired growth uh, going forward. So, um, you know, my background is here, that previous company. And before that, I had started two software companies, either on my own or with uh, partners and sold them. So I was an entrepreneur, then took over a small public and then got involved in research solutions.
0: Very good. Well, you know what, I, I think we're there. So I mean, with that, uh, well, firstly, right, thank you for answering all my questions. I really appreciate it. And uh, where can our audience go and find more information on research solutions?
1: Well, our website is researchsolutions.com, and there's an investor tab in the upper right-hand corner where you can go find uh, all of our press releases, uh, public documentation, etc. And, uh, you know, Robert, really appreciate your time. Thank you again, Roy. I really do appreciate it. Good luck. Stay safe. And I I look forward to our next
0: update. All right. Take
1: it easy. Thank you.